This week's episode is brought to you by the Film Rescue Show. The Film Rescue Show is a long-form podcast in which their crew and a guest fix a film every week. Want a good first episode? Check out episode 89 with Axel and myself, where he pitched fixes for the League of Extraordinary Drummond. Still waiting on that call, Warner Brothers. For fans of filmmaking, writing, and behind-the-scenes content, check out the Film Rescue Show on all your favorite podcasting sites today. And welcome to Geeks with Shields, your home for all things good and nerdy in this, the darkest timeline. I'm Lord Commander Ork, and with me as always is... His shield brother, Axel Wright. How's it going today, man? Not great. Uh, I woke up late. I had to go spend some time working on a chain link fence in my backyard without Oof. the proper tools. So that was a pain, and I got it functional, but it looks kind of janky, but whatever, it's functional. And then I got locked out of my house for like 40 minutes. So like Chain link sucks at the best of times, because you told me you were building a fence, and I was wondering what type of fence you were building. I'm like, God, I hope it's not chain link, because that's just... Well, I'm not even building that. I'm gonna eventually going to build a, a wood like privacy fence for the backyard this was just this was just trying to repair a section of the fence that was cut so and uh yeah that wasn't fun yeah no chain link is horrible it's heavy it fights you the whole time god no yeah so i'm not in a great mood right now (laughs) sorry (laughs) Ah, it's all good it's the state of the world anymore how are you uh honestly i'm in a pretty good mood all things considered probably because i've been binging the dollop lately and that alleviates my mood True. I've been listening to a lot of the dollop as well. I mean, I got you into it, but I, I was out of it for a couple months, but it's great to listen to while I work on my models. So Yep. No, I love it. Uh, I found out that a governor of Idaho was assassinated by a group of angry miners in the 1900s. I don't think I've heard that one yet. So Yeah, and uh, my family is tangentially related to that. Oh, geez. The one I just listened to was about Teddy Roosevelt's daughter and how she was an absolute badass. So I just got done with the one of the worst people in history, George Pullman. Oh, that sounds familiar. Uh, Oh, he's an evil bastard. Let's just leave it at that. All right. Anyway, but we're not here to talk about the dollop as awesome as it is. We're here to talk about, I guess, movies of 2021. (laughs) Yep. You've read the title, but we're getting ahead of ourselves. We've got to thank the people that made 2021 possible. That's right. Those are our patrons. And they are Pam Galley, Marquis, Chris Chipman, River Galley, Krug, Arthur Crane, Kevin Vay, Brendan Agnew, John Vinnels, Kit Kenny, Seth Decker, Donna Lucy, Nathan Willis, Patrick Anderson, Carson Mill, and Scott Rubin. Now, if you'd like to join that illustrious legion, just head on over to patreon.com forward slash Gates with Shields. Your continued support of this podcast means we get keep going no matter how bad 2022 is. And oh boy, please do not be as bad as the predecessing years. Anyway, positivity. Positivity. We're talking about movies of 2021 with a mostly a focus on good ones. (laughs) As in our uh, best. (laughs) I don't think we've done a negative, like worst. I think we've moved away from that like a lot of people have. Well, honestly, I I don't see enough movies in a year to make a worst list. I usually am pretty good about like, okay, let me put it this way. I go the films every sunday with uh with Woonvog, who's a frequent guest of the show we go because we have the regal unlimited and but we choose films that are generally speaking we're pretty sure we're gonna like 
Yeah, there are some examples of things that don't go over too well. Like last weekend, I went and saw Nightmare Alley, the new Guillermo del Toro flick, which I thought was going to be a shoe-in for me, but it didn't work for me. It's not bad. It just doesn't work for me personally. But generally speaking, I don't see like a lot of movies that I would consider horrible. I think the last time I went to the theaters and saw a movie that I hated was Crimes of Grindelwald, and that was like, what, four years ago? Yeah, between fatherhood and the last couple years my movie going has taken a bit of a nosedive yeah that said i still do see a fair amount of movies but this year namely in how slagathor structured geeks who haunt in that we shifted to other guests i didn't have to see as many bad horror movies as i normally would <laughs> Fair enough. and also i've just kind of stopped caring like unless a movie really gets under my skin i just kind of like no i'm done you were terrible unpleasant i'm moving on except is, for one that i had forgotten about till axel said do we want to talk about disappointments and i remembered the one like oh yeah yeah so real what? quick to to establish what Olga's talking about so we're not so we're not going to do a top 10 worst because we don't have 10 worst but we do each have a single movie that is our biggest disappointment of the year that doesn't necessarily mean the worst movie of the year just the one that your expectation to reality had the biggest gulf is what I call it. So yeah, no, go. that that's fair. Uh, mine was America, the motion picture. That's the animated one where it looks like it's Venture Brothers, but with the revolution, right? Yeah, and that's what I was kind of hoping for. I'm like, oh, this is going to be kind of a fun, tongue-in-cheek retelling of the American Revolution, American history, whatnot, and it's going to get kind of you know fun little jabs in about actual history. And instead, it feels like something Seth MacFarlane would have dreamt up. Mm, that's too bad. I mean, the biggest, like, there is so much, like, one, I've been asking this a lot, and I'll continue to ask I do want to say, real quick, I do want to say, just a sidebar, that I do think the Seth MacFarlane jab isn't as much of a, a, a jab as you think it is, because, I mean, the the Orwell was really oh, the good. the Orwell is great. Sorry, the Orville, not the Orwell, the Orville. The Orville. Yeah. <laughs> the Orville is great, but this yeah. is, like, on par of just above Family Guy in a lot of ways. Like, it... Do we still need, quote-unquote, bro humor in 2021? Uh, only if it's super ironic bro humor, like bro force the game, which is awesome. Yeah, but. no, this was literally like comedy of 2012 in that Washington and Lincoln were bros, and they talked about drinking and lifts, and it's just like, it, it wasn't funny. Also, in a world in which we have John Cena, do we still need Channing Tatum? Uh... I think so. I Honestly, I do think so, but that's only because I'm a huge fan of 21 Jump Street. <laughs> so. yeah, you, you like Tatum. I'm like, no, we have John Cena, who is both physically better and comically funnier. So I would say that it is surprising because they look very similar and they have a similar kind of timing. But I would say there's a, they there's a the very same niche, though. Almost. Um, I'd say there's a yeah. slight difference in that Cena fits a more um, blustery kind of comedy whereas tatum is more of a fratty kind of comedy it's it's exactly a and that's but, i'm not sorry but it's 2022 now do we still need frat house humor is that still a thing i'll tell you when the next comedic role for tatum comes out that i see <laughs> but and i mean yeah it there's so much potential in here like they do a great joke about paul revere being raised by horses <laughs> i'm like oh that's kind of clever but then they lose it because they cast wide net. They cast all sorts of, you know, big American people. There's some fun stuff into it. But then they go, we're going to include Thomas Edison and we're going to gender swap it. And we're going to lampshade that we gender swapped it instead of the fact of it should have been Nikola Tesla because Edison was an asshole. 
everyone knows Edison was an asshole. And they make her a mad scientist, too. Oh, so it's just very obviously should have been Tesla. Yeah, so. like, that's the whole joke. But they keep going, like, what, you got a problem that it's a woman? Like, no, I have a problem that it's Edison. Yeah, I mean, I had no problem when uh, Warehouse 13 gender-swapped H.G. Wells, so. Yeah, it does. It. It's like, listen, you're trying to make a joke out of, oh, you have a problem because I'm a woman? And like, no, I have a problem because you sh- obviously should have been someone else. But And it's just not funny. I mean, granted, there is a Save Martha joke that made me laugh because they have to save George Washington's wife, who was named ah, Martha. Ah, funny. And it's like, man. oh, that, that joke will be funny for, well, as long as Snyder Bros exist. Well, anyway, not to spend too much time on negativity, so I'll do my disappointment real quick. My biggest disappointment of the year was a movie called Antlers, which I remember seeing the trailers, and I remember seeing the name Guillermo del Toro. Again, Guillermo del Toro <laughs> is, like, the favorite of this podcast for a reason, so usually I see his name, and I'm a shoe in for it. Unfortunately, he didn't direct this film. He just designed the monster, which is a – it's a Wendigo. Uh, I mean, I know there's actually some – controversy over the nature of the Wendigo and popular mythology, but I'm I'm not a Native American. I don't actually know the real mythology behind skinwalkers and Wendigos, so I'm not going to get into that. All I know is that the general perception of Wendigo is cannibalistic antlered creature. So, and that's what I was expecting. I was hoping just for like a pretty cool atmospheric. It looks so good. Yeah. I was looking for a cool atmospheric movie with a, a Wendigo like stalking people. Instead, what the movie is, is basically 95% this kid who's probably like 11 years old living on his own because his dad is in, trapped in the, the attic turning into the titular antlered character. Except that that doesn't happen until the very end, so we spend almost the entirety of the film just watching this kid be in grimy, gross places while his teacher is concerned that maybe something's going on there because this is apparently a giant metaphor for domestic abuse or uh, parental abuse. Which I get it. Maybe there's an intelligent thing going on here. But again, the trailer sold Wendigo horror movie and the Wendigo is on screen for like less than a minute total. I swear this is worse than Godzilla 2011 in regards to this. And then he gets killed because a regular lady stabs it in the chest with a pipe, like a broken pipe. And then while it's on the ground kind of twitching, she just pulls out its heart. It, it It's that the most. raises all sorts of questions. Like, yeah. why would you do if you're going to use this? creature like this cultural myth why aren't you going to do anything with that yeah and it's like you have guillermo del toro designing your monster why don't you want to show me the monster (laughs) see i've become a little wary of guillermo del toro produced movies because they always kind of come down to the same thing of that was a great idea the delivery was not so stellar my go-to example is mama i never saw that so i can't say it is so 70 80 percent great until the end when it becomes a tim burton film ah. and you see like all the del toro influences like this should have been a del toro project because he could have carried it the rest of the way like i will say this he chooses fantastic projects to back because the ideas are interesting but they just they don't always seem to have that follow through yeah and again that's why i bring up that like uh nightmare alley was interesting and visually like great it just didn't work for me personally for reasons that are not really important but antlers on the other hand like made me actively angry (laughs) yeah that was again my thing with american the motion picture i was this is going to be fun this is going to get me my history this is going to get some dumb jokes and it was it was neither and i walked away sad and disappointed 
All right. Anyway, before we get into it, I'm just going to say uh, Ulrich's not doing this. We talked about this beforehand, but two movies that I wish I had seen that I didn't get to see were Nobody, the Bob Odenkirk, John Wick-esque thing, and Bo Burnham's Inside, which took over the general social circles that I run in, but I didn't get to actually see it. So don't expect me to talk about those in this. Anyway. Yeah. Uh, the reason I'm not doing that is because there are so many movies that came out this year I didn't have a chance to see, and that list would just go on forever. This was like a really great year for movies, partially in the backlog flood from 2020, partially also in – we just this was a really good year for movies, I think. Yeah, generally speaking, I was really happy with a lot of stuff that came out this year. I mean, my favorite movie of the year uh, came out early in the year, and then – and then right near the end of the year got supplanted by a different one. But the fact that like it held for so long and then another one came in at the end and supplanted it, I don't know, to me it's a good sign. So it's hard to explain why. I only saw of all I saw twenty-four movies that came out this year. And of those twenty-four, only three of them I actively disliked. There were a bunch of them that were mediocre, like this is gonna put a pink target on me, but I didn't care for Dune. I totally understand why. <laughs> A lot of people like Dune. I, I get it. I, I actually so, like Villeneuve's other stuff. Like, I love Prisoners. But Dune didn't work for me. I didn't dislike it. It just was, eh. <laughs> Here's the thing about Dune. I'm, I'm very wary to watch it. Because on the one hand, I don't think I'm going to like it. Because I've tried on several occasions to read Dune and just kind of bounced off it like a brick wall. But I, I see do, the trailer and go, <laughs> it looks interesting. And the director's interesting, so maybe I will like this. But I'm also afraid I'm going to get into it and bounce off it just like I did the book. Going, oh, this is dense gibberish. Fuck this. Well, I will tell you as someone who's seen it that it doesn't have the same – my issue with the book is I've tried to read it twice, and both times I have a major problem with how the book is written. Like not actually the content, just how it's written. The fact that yeah. Dune jumps like first-person perspectives without telling you, and so then you have yep. to like kind of figure out, all right, who's talking now? That doesn't uh-huh. exist as a problem in the movie. The movie's problems are more like soundtrack and pacing and stuff. But they're only problems if, like me, you want to have fun in your movie. So Yeah, I'm really curious to see it so I can form an opinion. But I'm like, you look amazing, but you sound boring. All right, before we get into our actual list, do you have any honorable mentions? I could honorable mention I have like 10 few. movies, but I'm not going to do that. So All right, well, these are ones that they all kind of hovered in and around – my top 10 for a bit uh one of those was the harder they fall on netflix which is an amazing western that is basically the avengers of black cowboys and outlaws like they cherry picked a bunch from history and then put them all together in a fictional movie uh its only problem is that drags a bit in the middle Hmm. that's my only complaint everything else this is a great modern western it has a amazing visual style i loved it so much but again it's a a little too long all right let's Okay. Uh, uh, let's just do, let's just do the one because it's going to take a long time to go through this. So yeah. your honorable mention is The Harder They Fall. My honorable mention is Willy's Wonderland, which is not a good movie, but it is a super fun one. And you've probably heard of it if you're listening to this. It's essentially the Nicolas Cage kills Five Nights at Freddy's movie. Yeah. <laughs> and that's Man. all it is. And if that idea sounds interesting to you at all, watch it. Because the movie – you can tell it's made on kind of a shoestring budget. Nicholas Cage plays this guy who basically gets roped into working in this Willy's Wonderland. It's totally Five Nights at Freddy's uh, for a night. And of course, the animatronics come to life and he 
Nicholas Cage character never speaks throughout the entire movie. He's the silent protagonist. Yeah, he's, again, because this is like a video game kind of thing, and he never talks at all. <laughs> and he is unflappable. So the fact that a an animatronic comes to life and tries to kill him, he reacts immediately by murdering the hell out of it and dismantling it, and then goes right back to work. Like, he doesn't That's care. Funny. Oh, it's part of the job, whatever. And then he's like drinking grape soda and obsessed with this pinball machine that's in the break room. So he goes to work for a while, then he takes a break, has some soda, plays pinball, kills an animatronic, repeat. And it's meanwhile, there's a bunch of kids who get into the place because they're like, we've heard the legends about the cult and, and the evil, and we want to put us up to the evil, and the kids are getting killed. But Nicolas Cage cares not one fuck for these kids and what they're doing. He just wants to deal with his, his job and have his grape soda. <laughs> so. I might have to watch that now. Cause let's be honest, this is the only five nights at Freddy movie. That's one going to come out and two doesn't support a horrible piece of shit. I hadn't heard that. Is Scott Cawthorn got a problem. Uh, donate tons of money to conversion therapy anti LGBT. Oh, oh that's like, sad to hear. Backs a backed Trump backed a bunch of Republicans. Okay. All right. I, I accept that. I'm, I'm yeah. sorry to hear that. I didn't know anything about that because I don't actually pay attention to Fighters and Freddy stuff. But anyway. I only became aware of it because his fan base turned up like a toxic wave to attack anybody that said, hey, maybe you shouldn't. All right. Well, anyway, point is, Willy's Wonderland is a super fun, cheesy, like, take on bad horror movies. And, and it's 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 good. <laughs> uh, my next one is The Forever Purge. Uh, we talked about we have an episode in the can where we talked about this in depth. Um, it was fun. Well, like, we all the fun things. That's that's my second honorable mention, too. So let's let's end the honorable mentions okay. at Forever Purge because we both. Yeah. Yeah. The point is, Forever Purge is a fun movie. Just didn't crack in either of our top tens. <laughs> yep. All right. Let's start. Uh, let's start getting in our actual top tens now. Let's start with number ten. And Ulrich, how about you go first? All right. Uh, my number ten was to say controversial doesn't feel right, but the discourse around it became insufferable in the matter of days, and that's Eternals. So sidebar, I keep during the year a memo on my phone so that I can keep track of what movies I've seen and where they fit, meaning that I know not just my top 10, but where all the movies I've seen fit. Eternal sits at number 15 on my list in that I liked it. It had problems, but if anything, I like how ambitious Eternals was. Yeah, no, Eternals, I liked. Like when I first saw it and I came out to him like, oh, well, that was pretty good. I liked the ideas. I like some of the stuff they're going for. I, I really can't stand the discourse that sprung up around it being Marvel's quote-unquote first failure. It's still yeah, made but all the money. To be fair, from what I can tell, the discourse is, like, very unfocused. Like, don't get me wrong. I hate the Star Wars discourse. There's a reason why we yes. don't talk Star Wars. But at least I feel like the people who I who I hate in the Star Wars conversation – I hate too strong a word. The people who I don't like in the Star Wars conversation at least feel like they have focused points. They're stupid points, but they're focused – Whereas everyone I heard complain about the Eternals, I I never got an impression that there was like an actual thing that they were latching onto. It was just a general sense of eh, and I'm like that's not really a criticism. <laughs> so. Yeah, no, that was more what kind of drove me crazy. Was it wasn't just eh, it was this one wasn't liked by the critics. Finally, people are waking up to Marvel sucks actually, and just jerk off motion insert here. Yeah, I'm not a fan of the. Uh, what I'm going to call the critic Marvel pushback because guess it's what? Pedantic. Marvel movies are fun. So yeah, no, anyways, that's the thing. But what really made this kind of click 
up a notch for me was when I realized this movie is essentially a story about what happens when mom dies and you have to get back together with all your siblings who you don't really like to reconcile her death. Huh. And I the minute I realized that. that, I was like, oh, and that just hit on a whole nother level. I'm like, okay, this is now clicking with me on a much more personal level, and I can relate to this now. Because it's, it's the story of a dysfunctional family. You could also argue that it's a story about uh, which which child will step up to take over the running the family. Yes. And it looks like everyone thinks it's going to be the oldest brother. And it turns uh-huh. out instead to be the oldest sister. So Yeah. No, it is 100. It's a family story. This is a very much a dysfunctional family that, you know, we're being held together by a matriarch. And then it kind of falls apart and they struggle to pull it back together. But they also shoot lasers and they have cool powers. And it's I will fun. say that. The big thing for me about Eternals, I know this is very simplifying, but it's just two performances, Kumail Nanjiani and more surprisingly, Angelina Jolie. Like, don't get me wrong. I knew Kumail Nanjiani was going to be fun, but I kind of expected Angelina Jolie to phone it in because she's yep. Angelina Jolie. But she I does she not was showing up for the kids. Yeah, but and she no. does not at all. She came to act and show off what Dude, she can do. And everyone in this movie is doing so, which is the other thing. Like, this is a big cast. And you have to balance them all and make them all relatable and have, you know, interesting stories. Plus, this one feels, I don't want to, I almost hate this, but there's kind of a grounded quality to it in that, you know, this is an epic story in its scale. But at the same time, it's very focused. Well, considering that it is the most epic story in scale in Marvel, like you'd think, how do you cover, how do you top Infinity Wars, you know, half the universe? Well, by explaining the entire origin of reality. (laughs) So. Yeah, but it kind of centering it around, you know, this family dysfunction. Yeah, I get that. All right, cool. No, I really enjoyed, like, this was just a really good movie. And maybe on subsequent watches, it will come in and, you know, be better. Though, I am both angered and overjoyed at the Black Knight teasing that went on throughout this movie. Yeah, I mean, honestly, I feel like casting Kit Harrington as the Black Knight was one of the most duh castings you could do. I, I approve of it heavily. It's very on so. the nose, but I was like, wait a second, Black Knight's in the MCU now? Goddamn, that wish list is getting real short. Yeah, you got Moon Knight, now you're going to get Black Knight. What's, what's next on your wish list? Say it out loud so that it will happen. So. Literally, the only people left on that list is uh, the Winter Guard, and they're already kind of sort of in. The only Marvel wish list character I had that hadn't got in already is probably Kamala Khan, and she's going to show up in Marvels and get her own show. I, mean, so. I, I guess I could start like really deep cutting, like, uh, can I get a Thunderbolt show? We probably uh, will. Almost. I, I, will, I'm I'm sure that's in the works. But like, uh, what about Craven? Can I get Craven now? Because also probably going to happen. For yeah, other it's like, it, listen, the deep cut far reaches. There's a hit monkey show. I don't even like hit monkey, but hit monkeys in now. And that was really good. That's true. I haven't seen that, but I popped up on my search the other day and I was like, I didn't know that was a thing. So anyway, yeah, no, that's really good. My number 10 movie is Fear Street Part 2. I only say part two because I haven't seen part three. And I've been told that once you see part three, that you could just consider all of it one movie and that part three actually retroactively makes part one better because part one was only mediocre to me, but part two is amazing. Part two is basically a up-to-date Friday the 13th movie (laughs) and it's awesome. Yeah, it it ratcheted uh, the intensity like right up 
to the level of this is almost uncomfortable because these are almost children. Yeah, for anyone who missed it, Fear Street is a series written by uh, R.L. Stein that was a little more grown up, quote unquote. I don't know. A this better was word the for this. teenage market. Yeah, so a little more grown up than Goosebumps, and so they turn it into three Netflix movies, quote unquote. It's it's hard to explain what they are, but the um the same team did parts one and three apparently, but a different team did part two. And it kind of shows, but again, I'm totally open to part three actually makes part one better. So we'll deal with that when I get to it. But part two by itself, it's got the, uh, the girl who played Max in Stranger Things is playing like one of the main characters. There's this guy who basically the plot line of Fear Street is there's a witch that possesses people and causes them to murder people because she was wrongly killed in like witch trials. Oh, actually technically she was rightly killed because she is a witch, but not the point. Point is, you got a guy with a bag on his head and a flannel shirt and an axe murdering, like, 12-year-olds. And and that sounds harsh, but look at it this way. There's a sequence where there's a kid who probably is about 11 or 12, and he's they're playing this game where it's, like, it's war or tag, but you, you can keep, like, prisoners or something. And it's he's got, like... Capture the flag. Yeah, it's a capture the flag thing. And he's got, like, four um, older kids from the other team like in this room and he's quote unquote guarding them and you know you're watching the sequence and it's it's kind of goofy and they're kind of bullying him a bit and then you just see the killer just power walking in with his axe and then it happens off screen but you still he just he just murders this kid and there's there's a weird line between like i don't want my movie to feel so dark and edgy like it's trying too hard but this doesn't feel that it feels just more like oh they went there. It gets right so. up on that edge of this is almost too much. Like you're crossing into Rob Zombie territory. Yeah, but it doesn't it doesn't quite. It manages to stay yeah. on the the right side of of tasteful, and it's got just great acting performances. Surprisingly great. There's this one character who's like the teenage rebellion girl who, when she first showed up on screen, I hated her because I was like, mm-hmm. oh, this this is gonna be super cliche but then there's just a few lines later on when she's talking to her her friend that just suddenly humanize her and make her way more interesting and it's just surprising that they can do that so yeah no uh i will talk about this because it's it's further on my list okay well then we can move on to your nine uh, uh my number nine uh noticing a trend maybe is a uh, shang chi which is on my list further up so i'll just be quiet <laughs> This was one like I'm 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 a sucker for Marvel movies. I love I love this. I'm a big comic nerd. I love genre films. I'm I'm they're good. Okay. Uh but this was one I'm like, all right, how are they gonna make the kung fu guy work? And then I heard that, oh, this one's gonna have the Mandarin. I'm like, okay, we're gonna, you know, go back and fix that one. And this is and just like in terms of action, this is such good action. Uh, the bus fight scene is possibly is probably in the top five action sequences in all of the MCU. So yes. Uh, so then my next real kind of it's like okay, so the kung fu guy, the punchy dude, this actually looks good. This actually feels like some universe. It's fun to watch. My next concern was Aquafina. I'm like I like her, but I feel like her comedy could get real grating, real over the top, real fast. Like no, no, we're gonna dial her back to like a nice mellow three, and she's <laughs> a great supporting character. And I'm like oh. Well, that works. Like, all right, last thing, Mandarin. Let's see how you... And then I saw the casting news. I'm like, oh, well, it doesn't matter what they do. This is going to fucking rock. Yeah, I can't remember that actor. Tony, Tony, Tony something? Yeah, uh, Tony Young? I think... But I know that that actor is considered, like, one of the best actors uh, in his home country. So it was, like, a yeah. big thing to people who know uh, that cinema. Like, I apologize for not knowing his name offhand. But, yes, 
he kills it as the Mandarin. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm like, oh, cool. And they even like make a good joke about the Mandarin. They named me after a chicken dish. Yeah, because like, within the movie's context, he doesn't call himself that at all. He he just goes by, you know, his name. So. Yeah, and I'm like, oh, this is perfect. And then they kind of do what I always wanted Iron Fist to do. They lean kind of hard into the mystic kung fu fighting elements of the Marvel Universe. Yeah, well, I, I will and say that a lot like, of people criticize the third act for getting really marvel and my instant response is not really what they're doing the third act is going full like chinese cinema like yeah. fantasy kind of stuff so Listen, guys just because there's a big climax in the third act does not make it marvel-y yeah that, exactly I, I, I hate that complaint like well there was a climax in the third act that was a fight like have you seen like basically any action movies in the last 40 years they yeah. end in a big action climax exactly so I, I'm very much uh, a fan of, of Shang-Chi. I, I love that there's a fight sequence that happens on the side of a building that feels like something out of oh, hot peak Jackie boy. Chan. So. Yeah. No, like this, I mean, there's, I mean, Slagathor is more of the martial arts nut in the family than I am. So she was picking out things like, okay, this instantly takes me back to, you know, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, or this takes me back to Rumble in the Bronx, or this takes me back. Oh no, she, she's totally right because there are there are definitely the images are right on their on their sleeves. The, when they first get to the the mystical village, it it definitely gets full on Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, and the fact that they've got isn't it Michelle Yeoh there mm-hmm. playing? Yeah, so oh, it's she like, had happy tears when she yeah. saw her fighting again. Yeah, exactly. So like they're doing that on, on totally on purpose there, and yeah, Shang Chi is great. I love. Oh, one more thing with the Mandarin thing: the fact that they have the entire plot line of it be. Hey, I'm an actual, you know, Chinese person that the West co-opted my story for their their story is like such a weird Ouroboros of meta that I I adore it because the Mandarin was always going to be a problematic character in the comics, so that's why they did what they originally did in Iron Man three. But then this they on did top it of they were it, cowards. Uh-huh. Anyway, but this on top of that makes it like it's kind of the perfect way to deal with a character like that. I think so. This movie works across the board for me. There is nothing about this I don't like. The reason it's only at number nine, and Eternals would almost beat it out, but it doesn't for reasons, is there's nothing like I personally really latch onto about this. This is fun, but this is fun to me, and wow, this is what I go to the movies for. I, I will say that I'm a huge fan of Kim's convenience, and seeing Simu yep. Liu in this is great. <laughs> Yeah, no, he slots right in. I'm excited to see where they go with this character. I'm excited to see where they go with this world. Yep. Anyway, uh, my number nine is Jungle Cruise, which, hey, apparently you put Dwayne The Rock Johnson in a jungle and film it, and you're going to make a good movie. So <laughs> it's it's not quite as good as the original Pirates of the Caribbean. The movie, it's very obviously aping. But like I said, it's it's The Rock. He's charismatic to a ridiculous degree, and he's just fun to watch. And seeing what they do with the, you know, kind of jungle story is neat. There's not a whole lot to say about it other than, you know, it's just kind of a fun boat movie with The Rock. <laughs> yeah, I didn't see this one because as I watch them, like, this should interest me. But much like Dune, I'm just like, but I don't want to see you. So, yeah, the thing is, there's not a lot to talk about with Jungle Cruise. Like I said, it, it really goes off the Pirates of the Caribbean thing. I mean, there's literally a couple there's like conquistadors who are cursed and are taken on the aspects of the jungle. Like that was like, yeah, it was like the big joke. Everybody like, this is just pirates. But you cast the rock instead of Johnny Depp. I mean, but 
can you argue that that's not a good thing? <laughs> I just want more pirate bay themed movies. It doesn't necessarily have to be. I agree. I agree. But I'm, I'm just saying that, like, I was trying to make a jab at Johnny Depp. Anyway. Well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, if you need to replace Johnny Depp with anybody, you go the opposite direction. You get the rock. You can't go any further than un- an unproblematic territory, then. Honestly, though, one of the best things about it is that if you've written the actual Jungle Cruise at Disney World, one of the things that's fun about it is that the one of the main things that's fun about it is that the tour guide, the guy running the Jungle Cruise, they are taught to be jokey, sarcastic and kind of like snarky. Like they're meant to be like anti hecklers. Like, example, some buddies of mine wrote it. I didn't go with them, but they told me these stories later and they will do things like, hey, there's elephants on the on the side of uh the side of the river they'll be like where can you find elephants and then my buddy austin was like africa and the tour guide goes to the right of us yes so you know just just little things like that to poke fun at people and so the entire sequence in the beginning of this movie where the rock is doing essentially that for i know he won't doesn't like be called the rock much anymore anyway dwayne johnson is basically doing that he's the rock okay yeah. and he's just <laughs> he's just verbally messing with these people on the boat is hilarious and accurate and i i enjoyed that kind of stuff it's a lot of humor in the movie and it worked for me all right uh we got my number eight now correct all right my number eight is the fear street trilogy i'm counting it as one movie because it's meant to be watched as one movie yeah the only reason i haven't seen part three is because i watched parts one and two with wretched giraffe a frequent guest of the show and i haven't got to hang out with him and get again and watch part three so and i say it's meant to be watched in one movie in that the movie literally ends at the beginning of the next movie and then it links in you could literally sit down and watch all of these there will be no real cuts so it's and like a back to the future situation Yes, it's exactly cut in Back to the Future style, and that each one is different. And then the first one is kind of a generic, you know, 90s slasher, which is fun, but it's the weakest of the trilogy. The Honestly, one, the, one of the biggest problems I had with the first one is that it felt overstuffed with 90s music. And I love 90s music, but come on, man. So <laughs> I, I'm enjoying referencing a decade that I was alive for, like I'm done with the 80s nostalgia i don't know what 90s nostalgia is because 90s nostalgia is a lot of hey remember the 80s i mean i feel like fear street part one shows 90s nostalgia pretty well so <laughs> i mean i'm not saying it's there not there i'm just saying the 90s were a dumping ground for every other decade a little bit anyway go on and so it's it's good the second one we talked about is you know that camp slasher and then the third one kind of starts of we're going to tell a story in pilgrim times i'm like oh cool and then it just flips the script and go all right here's the real story and then here's everything else to tie it all together and make you totally reevaluate this movie this series movie whatever you want to call it so far and I'm like oh oh that's good i mean not only in the sense that were they able to craft three really good movies? They were able to craft three really good movies that work cohesively across the board and tie together. Which is a tricky trick to pull off. So yeah, and I mean I can't I don't really want to spoil this one too much. Mainly well, again, in the third one, I think the best way to just talk about it in general is it's a, a trilogy about a a witch who curses a town, and then you deal with and basically the way she curses the town the the gimmick is that she kind of possesses people every some number of years to become serial killers. They all have their own gimmicks and look like they would have their own movie entirely. And uh, then you deal with this group of kids who is trying to stop it from happening anymore. That's yeah. the premise. And I mean, they're really good. And like Stagathor and I were talking about the way this one ends, There's, in, it, there could be more. 
But we were almost like, what if they went back and told these individual stories, just like as their own little standalones? Yeah, I mean the the singing girl with the straight razor is terrifying. Oof. So. Yeah, no, it's it feels very much like uh, Warner Brothers did when they're sitting up at the Conjuring. Like we're just going to do a scary image and test audience reactions. They're like, oh, all right, they're they're afraid of that. Let's make that a movie. One of the killers is like a a twelve year old with a mask and a baseball bat, and that's yeah, it's it. Just, it's <laughs> real simple primal fear shit. That like, oh yeah, no, that, that's unsettling for psychological reasons. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a good solid horror movie. Like that alone is gonna get it in my top ten every time. All right, so my number eight is Encanto, which I can't ever see without saying it that way. Only because <laughs> only because in the game Divinity uh, Original Sin two, there's when certain casters cast, they say something very similar in that same cadence. So just every time I saw the word, just Encanto. Anyway, well, doesn't it translate to enchantment? I think so. So, I don't speak Spanish. Yeah. So Encanto is, I think it's supposed to be um, not Mexican, uh, but some South it American, is, like Brazil, maybe. But I, Colombia. Colombia? They, they flew the animators to Colombia to study and, you know, like immerse themselves so they could, you know, properly draw and everything. Thank you. I wanted to be accurate because I like I like cultural movies like this that feel like, hey, yes. this is a way to introduce children to other cultures. And let me put it this way. Small things, I love the character designs and clothing. of this. So if you don't know, Encanto is the new Disney movie that's about a family, I guess a Colombian family, who has this house, and the family is essentially X-Men. The house grants <laughs> each of them oh a superpower. Oh my god, superpower. you're so right. Like, yeah. even on a deeper meaning, you're right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for a lot of reasons. But the house basically grants all of them superpowers, just, just one each, Except for our main character, Mirabelle, which is basically revealed in the trailer and in the first song, so it's not a spoiler to say that she doesn't have a power. Although I have a personal hypothesis about what's actually going on there that the movie never confirms, but not important. So anyway, uh, the trailers do do one thing that I don't like, which is they use clips from some songs that are metaphors in the context of the movie – but then make the the trailers make it seem like they're gonna go on some like onward style adventure when that's not the case. The entire movie takes place in this house. They don't go anywhere. It's about it's a movie about similar to what Ulrich was saying with the Eternals. It's a movie about a family that has a a dysfunction. It's not as dysfunctional necessarily as the Eternals is, but there's actually a very similar storyline going on here. And Mirabelle, the powerless one. Has to, and when I say powers, there's one character that's super strong. We never, literally, never see the height of her strength, but she can pick up an entire church easily. Her name she's, is Louisa, and she 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 has a special place in my heart. Yeah. There's another character who has super crazy hearing and can hear anything basically in the entire valley they're in. Another character whose emotions control the weather, and there's another character who can speak to animals and kind of control them. So like these are the kind of powers we're talking about. And Mirabel doesn't have any. Uh, but one thing I love about this movie, now that I've said the base premise is all the characters are designed so differently like even i've heard people criticize what i'm going to call the um the disney pixar face structure which is most apparent in frozen and tangled but is yeah. in a lot of things and right off the bat mirabelle our main character's face is not shaped like that and it stood out to me in a very good way i really like how mirabelle's designed she's got glasses i don't remember if we've had any Quote nope, Disney she's Princess the first one because a lot of Glasses fans are like, finally, representation for the blind. Yeah, well, plus I like, I just think Glasses look great on people. And 
and the the clothing like the, the the whatever the culture's clothing is particularly these like really flowy dresses and stuff look great in animation they're just gorgeous to watch as these characters are dancing around one character can just has phytomancy and can control plants and she does it to make flowers everywhere and while the character herself is kind of a jerk like it creates great visualization the songs are great they're um i don't know if they were completely written by but i know lynn manuel miranda was involved in them he wrote the soundtrack yeah and it shows because especially luisa's song uh yep surface pressure and and uh we are the family magical the opening song like those two songs dominate my brain i know a lot of people like uh, (laughs) we don't talk a lot of people like we don't talk about Bruno and that's a fun song, but we're the family magical is just so damn catchy and surface uh, pressure <laughs> is so like intense. I, and I was going to say, if you, if you follow us on Twitter, you know, my thoughts on pressure and everything about that. I believe Ulrich's exact response was to share the community gif of, I hope this doesn't awaken something in me. <laughs> Spoilers. It did. It did in a very, unpre- I'm, I was not prepared for the level of awakening that brought on. <laughs> See, uh, I went and saw it, like I said, with Woundvog, and Woundvog is into muscly women, so that worked <laughs> very well for him. So, <laughs> Anyway, Encanto is a super fun movie, and if I'm comparing it to like the last outputs of Disney, I, I like it better than Tangled, I like it better than both the Frozens, I like it probably on par with Coco, but for different reasons. So, so take that. Yeah, no. <laughs> Side note on Coco, I, I tried to watch it again here recently with my daughter, I'm like, oh no. This has dad feels all over it. I can't watch this. You know, that was one thing I was thinking. Um, I was watching, I watched Ghostbusters Afterlife, and it's not on this list, spoiler, because it's just okay. But the ending is great. But the ending is great in a specific way that I was like, I bet this is going to wreck Ulrich and probably wrecked Chris. And according to Chris, it basically did. So. <laughs> God, dad feels are a thing, and I don't like them. Yeah. Since I'm not a dad, I can only sympathize i can't really empathize but i get it so anyway yeah there's my number that was my number eight so you're number seven all right my number seven i realized in how i structured this there's a pattern is uh spider-man no way home i have faced my fair share of criticism on social media because i was very wary about this one the more they got revealed and i think people took my initial review to think i didn't like it and I'm not going to spoil this because I don't want to. I mean, I feel like everything, like the, the big plot points are there. I would say, a generally, of... generally speaking, as you said, this is kind of a big, long suggestions of the week. Basically, we're doing these are, you know, 20 movies that you should all go see or, or less because we have overlap. So, yeah, definitely don't spoil things that are spoilable in No Way Home. If it's in the trailer, you can talk about it. Yeah, so I'm just going to kind of wiggle my way through here. This one bounced on and off my top 10 list so many times as I thought about it and tried to figure out where I would place because I love the middle. The o- the opening is so good and so perfect of this concept of what is Peter Parker's life like now that everyone knows he's Spider-Man in a post-Avengers world. Mm-hmm. And the ending is really good and how it wraps up and like resetting the board, which is my favorite thing when these Marvel movies actually feel like they've reset something. Mm-hmm. Because it feels like I'm at the end of a comic run, and I'm like, oh, oh I, shit, what happens next? Oh, I will definitely say that there is not a single Marvel movie in the entirety of the MCU whose ending left me wanting a continuation faster. Yes. So then there's one part in the middle that just reaches in and rips out your heart. 
Yep. And a lot of that is on the acting and everything. But I will I will say Tom Holland has progressively gotten better. Not that he was bad in Homecoming. I'm one of the people who thought Homecoming was only okay. But like all the actors who are in all three of these movies, you can see getting better over time. So Yeah. So where my problems are and why this kind of rocked back and forth so hard was the middle doesn't do anything for me. And if you've seen that movie, you kind of understand why that may or may not be. Because it's reliant on you having certain connections and feelings and opinions that I do not have. Fair enough. So I, I don't personally part, feel like it's reliant, but but I get what you mean. So. And that was the part I just kind of waffled on. It's like, I love this opening because it is so frantic. You feel the pressure that Peter is under. And that ending is so great because you're literally just kind of like this husk, emotional husk. And you're like, oh, fuck, what happens now? So I have these two real strong emotions that I get to that middle and it's like, did he need these villains, or could this have been one of his own original villains? Uh, and so also, this, side this is revealed in the trailer. We can talk about it. The fact that so it, it brings back uh, Alfred Molina and Willem Dafoe as the Sam Raimi Green Goblin and Doc Ock. And I think that's what Ulrich is referring to because a yes. lot of it is. It also brings back the Amazing Spider-Man villains, and I uh, I will say that for me the biggest surprise was Jamie Foxx's Electro, because uh, when given a proper script, he does very well, I think, actually. He so, does, but one thing I wondered is, if we can afford to upgrade him, why couldn't we upgrade the lizard to not look like shit? You know, I actually kind of disagree. I thought the lizard looked much better this time. I don't know why, but I, I just feel like the compositing on a CG was tighter, so he didn't I look I think I hate much. that general design. Like, that is not the lizard design I like. That's fine. I prefer a lizard design where he looks more like a crocodile, where he's got a long yes. face, so I totally agree with you. But I do think from a purely CG effect standpoint, he is much better rendered in this movie than he was in the Amazing Spider-Man films. So, anyway... Point is, I think that what he's talking about is, like, there's a sequence where Norman Osborn says, you know, I'm something of a scientist myself. And I admit, I lost my shit when he said that. I <laughs> kind of smirked so. and rolled my eyes, like, okay, I know what you're doing. And that's the thing, is, like, Willem Dafoe as Green Goblin is, again, putting in a great performance, but I'm kind of brought back to, he's doing a great performance, but is he doing a good Green Goblin Norman Osborn? And I yes, still wrestle absolutely. with that. Sorry, as a, as a huge Spider-Man fan, I gotta tell you that fucking A right he is, particularly the sequence where, there's a sequence where Tom Holland, Spider-Man, is, is punching him, and he just keeps turning back and smiling and laughing, and the fact that they decide this time to go with no mask and just have Willem Dafoe's already crazy elastic face convey the, the goblin with his crazy smiles, he's fucking perfect as Norman Osborn Goblin. Yeah, no, see, that's the one I, I really wore back and forth with. It's like, that's a really good, you know, thing, but I also don't buy that you're a mastermind criminal. I feel like you're just a crazy, but again, you're also Goblin when Goblin is just insane. So there's a lot I ward with with this movie, and I can't really go into it without doing spoilers. Maybe we'll do a review of it for our patrons. I do want to say later. that, yeah, I do want to say this movie made me realize that the Green Goblin is basically, and I know this is not a, necessarily a positive for you, but the Green Goblin is basically a character combination of Lex Luthor and the Joker, meaning yeah. that meaning that Spider-Man's greatest villain is a combination of Superman and Batman's greatest villains, which is just really fascinating for me to think about. But anyway. So, yeah, so I guess my real big kind of issue, aside from the one I can't talk about, is I was really kind of, I don't want to say, I was, I was I was annoyed that, but he wasn't getting his own versions of these villains. He was getting somebody else's. And they kind of make it work, but not enough for me. 
That's fair like, enough. I, the I fact talk- that the original plot was going to be Craven the Hunter excites me so much more because that's a character I care about and I haven't seen and I want to see, okay, what is this universe's version of Craven like? You can tell that they care, though, because there is a giant reference to Craven the Hunter in the movie. So I must so have missed prob- that. Yeah. Um, for Without getting into details, you straight up see his silhouette. And it's really? very obviously him. Yeah. Damn it. How did I miss that? Yeah. Well, so. I'm- Craven's going to come in at some point, and I don't know how, but that, that excites me. Anyway, uh, I have more to say about Spider-Man, but spoilers, it's going to be later. Anyway, <laughs> number seven on my list is Halloween Kills, which I know is a very divisive movie. Yeah, I, this is, was not, uh, well, uh, universally received. Yeah, so here's the thing when it comes to, I'm not usually into horror movies, but I started getting more into them this year because I started thinking about them differently. And Halloween 1978 or 77, whichever it is, is probably my favorite slasher film period and it's it's not the original people say it's the original the original is probably texas chainsaw massacre but not the point so i'm a huge fan of of michael myers story and i liked halloween 2018 a lot and i get that there it's funny because if you look at halloween 2018 halloween 1978 and halloween kills they illustrate that there's kind of two different kinds of michael myers fans there's fans who are really interested in the like the metaphor and the ptsds or PTSD and the like the psychology, which is what Halloween 2018 really touched on. And then there are fans who just want to see Michael Myers kill people brutally in an atmospheric Halloween setting, which is what Halloween Kills is. Like Halloween Kills drops most of the pretense. It does have a little bit of social commentary about the nature of mobs and stuff, but that's really just window dressing. The main reason that for this movie to exist is for Michael Myers to kill like 28 people over the course of this movie. <laughs> so. Yeah, I haven't seen it. I don't plan to see it because I'm not. I love what. Don't get me wrong. John Carpenter is one of my all time favorite horror directors. I'm not really attached to Halloween as a franchise. And the reboot one left me angry for reasons I can't remember. <laughs> so well, I will I'm, say I'm, Halloween Kills is, out. is pretty different from 2018 which is why it's controversial because now there are i literally of my i i we've said this before Ulrich and i have like four four critics that we generally follow uh that we like and of <laughs> i'm those, down to two unfortunately uh yeah i still look at the other ones because i want to hear other opinions but i agree with you generally i know what you're talking oh, about no, anyway. I, I, i'm slotting a third in. never mind that's a whole other topic yeah anyway point is though that when i looked up their their reviews of halloween 2018 and halloween kills one of them hated both of them. One of them liked 2018, but not Kills. Another one liked Kills, but not 2018. And I and the last one liked both of them. So I literally had a spread of like, this is, this is a very interesting, divisive duo, duo franchise here. So anyway. Yeah, no, that's been the takeaway so far. Yeah, so here's my only thing I'll say. If you literally just want to watch really well shot and aesthetically pleasing, atmospheric Michael Myers killing people, Halloween Kills will will make you happy. If you want something more than that, it probably won't. So. All right, we're on my number six? Yes. All right, my number six is The Suicide Squad, a movie that I was insanely excited for and enjoyed a lot. Which is number 14 on my list. Um, I love James Gunn. He's quickly become one of my favorite directors. I hated Suicide Squad. Um, This one is like the most James Gunny James Gunn movie that ever James Gunned. Outside baby Probably. super, like super is like a close. I feel super is a bit more. Super's a little too 
Super's a little too dark, I think, for what James Gunn's normal is now. But yes. Yeah, I'd say Super is his unrefined version. This is the more refined, sanded off the edges bit. Um, this is the only movie that Slagathor and I actually got to see in theaters this year. Because, mm. well, this was the one she came out like this was like right at the end of, hey, COVID's over. We're going to be OK. And she was willing to go back out in theaters. And then we all learned how wrong we were. And she's like, oh, I'm never going back to theaters again. Um, I I will say that Suicide's the the Suicide Squad, Idris Elba kills it, John yep. Cena kills it, yep. the actress playing Ratcatcher is surprisingly effective, yep, and the fact that they bring in Stallone not, is pulling yep. you know handful of words still doing great performance. I'm not gonna spoil what it is, but the Suicide Squad had the balls to bring in a Justice League level threat for the Suicide Squad to deal with. Yeah, so. No, this movie, it works. And again, this is one of those, it's a huge ensemble cast that it manages to, you know, get everyone in there, give everyone story arcs, have everyone work. Um, that beach scene was yeah, the one of the hardest great. parts I've laughed in the theaters. Uh, Pete Davison and Flula uh, particularly are pretty great in it. I, also, the weasel exists. <laughs> so... Here, I, I, I live tweeted my, my daughter's reaction when I first, when I watched this on a home. First question is, what's that? Oh, that's Weasel. He's ugly. I like him. Followed by, what happened to Weasel? Oh, he died. Oh, that's sad. As an engineer, I, think he's I will just say, yeah, as an engineer, I will say that uh, Bloodsport, the character that Idris Elba is playing, has future tech that I really, really want. He's basically got this crazy tech where he pulls out these like little like cubes and he just attaches them to his gun and it makes his gun into a bigger gun. <laughs> yep. Just attaching whatever bits. My only real complaint with this movie and the only reason it's not sitting higher is it's too long, but I don't know where you cut. True. That's something the I only definitely... part you could cut is maybe the Harley stuff, but that Harley stuff is such great character stuff for her that it would be a crime to cut it. If anything, like just for speech. literally one moment, there's one moment where I'm not going to spoil what happens but a character proposes to her yes, and then says something afterwards and then Harley reacts in a certain way. And that moment alone makes the entire sequence worth it. Yes. So. Like I, said, I call that her speech. It is perfect. And again, I will say in a world in which we have John Cena, do we still need anybody else? I mean, he's feeling I mean, the best. One of the best lines in the whole movie is John Cena and uh, pacemaker and Bloodsport are having essentially a competition about yep. who and then uh john's the peacemaker shoots a guy and the guy still seems alive but then the bullet explodes and and bless was like no one likes a show off peacemaker goes unless what they're showing off is dope as hell yeah no, john cena's a hilarious motherfucker i did not realize it you know oh i want to quote the freedom line but it's better said in the trailer and then Ratcatcher hey. has that great re- reaction of like why would someone cover a beach in dicks i don't know why mad men do what mad men do yeah, I, I will say the, that I am very much agreeing with you that this movie taught me more than any other year. I or sorry, this year taught me more than any other year that I if you're going to have a movie longer than 90 minutes, you need to really justify that 90 minutes to me. Like, yeah, because I start feeling like things get long pretty quickly. after. Well, the, if, like, it's, the, it's, it's a lot of, like I always do it. Like if there's any point in this movie, I'm like, OK, this is feeling a bit. I'm starting to check out a bit. And some movies can, like they work and I don't worry. This one was very much like, I'm enjoying it, but I also kind of want to go home. And then I'm on my way home. Like, okay, what could I have cut? And that's the thing is, I don't know what you could have cut. 
I don't know what you could have done to, you know, amp the pacing because this movie moves at a great clip. Also, like all the little comic break sections. Yeah. Anyway, in the interest of time, uh, my number six is Mitchell's versus the Machines, which I saw just last week uh, because Wundvog got it on DVD. And it's an animated film made by a group of people that is just like their passion project. And uh, if you have somehow not seen the trailers, which is probably reasonable because it wasn't a very wide release or anything, it's about a family, a very dysfunctional family. I'm seeing a a, a trend here in our films. (laughs) A very dysfunctional family of just a a dad, a mom, a college-age daughter, like just like 18 or something like that, and a like 10-year-old son. It's just these four. And – oh, and their dog, which is a pug – but yep. it's an animated pug, so it kind of looks like a pig. Anyway, <laughs> they're going on a road trip because the dad and the daughter are estranged, and the dad is trying to fix things the only way he knows how. And, of course, she's an 18-year-old girl, so she wants to kind of separate herself and become her own thing, and he doesn't really understand her because she wants to go to film – she's going to film school. She is going – not wants to. She is going to film school, but she's a very – idiosyncratic filmmaker she makes like these very she's gonna have a career making like good children's stuff is how to put it but it's it's very odd and and importantly but he doesn't get it so anyway all that's happening and then the machine apocalypse happens and essentially apple robots take over (laughs) the world and the mitchells have to try to save the world there's the whole plot but all that save the world stuff doesn't really matter this is a father-daughter movie about the relationship between a a dad who is out of his element but desperately wants to have a relationship with his daughter and a daughter who misses the relationship she had with her dad but is trying to identify herself without essentially realizing that her dad is an actual individual person and and uh you can imagine how this one hit me yeah again Ulrich is an actual <laughs> dad so i know this one hit him hard especially there's a, a moment i so want to talk about but i won't spoil it there's a moment where where a character finds a videotape and it reveals something oh, about the dad and what the dad had done in the past and that almost broke me like the level of of just good mm-hmm. storytelling in that moment and because the dad and the dad picks up an item that an item that had been shown previously in the movie, but now suddenly you understand what the meaning of the item is. And I was I was floored by how good that was. So, yeah, this one, this I'll, I'll go into this one when it comes up on my list. But uh, no, this one definitely got me misty eyed more times than I was comfortable with. Yeah. So we can move on because we'll talk about it later. But that's yeah, that's my number six. So you're number five. All right. Uh, my number five and continuing my trend is Black Widow, which was Boy, I, number 20 I, I, on my <laughs> list. I sure do like superhero movies about dysfunctional families. Particularly dysfunctional dad-daughter families. <laughs> yeah, it's like this has been a this, hmm, this has been a year for uh stuff like that. Um and that's honestly where a lot of well, the reason this movie sits so high is largely on the broad muscular shoulders of David Harbour and my favorite trope of uh, not necessarily found families but forged families. Yeah, I mean, I'm a big fan of the idea that the family you make is more important than the family you're born with, but... Yep, anyway. I know. That is... That, I mean, this movie's coming from two directions, and it's got lots of dad vibes, and it's got it's about a, you know, found family. I'm like, oh, you're just queuing up to go right for my heart. Okay. So real quick, because I don't have a lot to say about it. this. 
I, I'm gonna I'm gonna give the the microphone over to you in a second to go full. But I just want to say real quick, I wish I liked this movie more. David Arbor kills it. That actress they got to play Black Widow's sister, Yelena, who also shows up in Hawkeye, Thank she you. kills it, and I want to see more yep. of her because she's just super fun to watch. Yep. So I don't know why this movie didn't work for me really, and I wish I'd liked it more. So I think that's just I, I think it's I, my I, fault. I don't think it's the movie's fault. So no, go ahead. I think it's 100 percent this movie. Like a lot of people did not like this movie. For me, this is my first movie back in theaters, so that's mm-hmm. also probably weighing into it. But this movie is kind of hitting a lot of key points for me. In the ones I talked about, uh, Florence Pugh's Yelena is this perfect kid sibling one, which if you have a younger kid sibling, you can also kind of key in on that, which I do. I'm like, okay, she's playing little sister, little sibling perfectly in the why I want to be like my big sister. Um, That opening is, I think, hands down some of the best stuff. The the cold open, I think, is one of the best openings Marvel's done in a while. um, Was it the... The part that took place in the past with the plane. Yeah. Okay. With all the 90s stuff. With yeah. I thought Nirvana was like, hold up now. Nirvana? Okay. I know it's the 90s, but there might be better. Um, this would also Hold be on, hold on, hold on, Ulrich. All right. Better. We can argue about the, the quality of grunge music all we want, but there ain't anything more influential than Nirvana. I'm in the not 90s. arguing influence. I'm arguing of does Smells Like Teen Spirit really belong in a montage about human trafficking? I'll accept that. Yes. That was the one I'm like, okay, listen, I get what you're going for here, and this is very dark and all power to you, but is Smells Like Teen Spirit really the vibe that you're going for? Um, Yeah, there's just like lots of little things that work for me that kind of stack and stack and stack. Plus, I got two out of four members of the Winter Guard in this movie. I got Red Guardian and I got Ursus Major. Although Ursus Major is relegated to a very small cameo, but yes. But according to the actor, he is playing Ursus Major from the comics, and he is the first mutant in the MCU. Cool. And we also get Crimson Dynamo referenced, so that's nice. Again, this movie really kind of works because the dad vibes are so strong, and it's kind of a Bond movie, like a classic you know, Sean Connery style bond. And so I got that personal question. Again, this one is kind of tailor made of it's hitting all the points it needed to hit for me to love it. Fair enough. Even like the Taskmaster thing, which everyone got all pissed about. Like, I was I fine know. with that. I mean, Taskmaster I didn't love does it, what Taskmaster does. Yeah, I didn't love it, but I didn't hate it either. I was perfectly fine with what they did with Taskmaster. Here, here's what I keep telling people Taskmaster is going to show up in the Thunderbolts movie. That's why they were introduced. I will say I think the villain was weirdly handled. Like, he's a good, creepy, gross villain, and the fact that he basically is a literal representation of patriarchy is is good. I just don't like the whole... Oh, no, he's also supposed to be... Uh, what's the creepy, evil movie producer? Weinstein? Yeah, he's Weinstein. Like, he's yeah, supposed no. to be Weinstein. Again, I totally accept all that. I just got way distracted by these stupid hormone... Uh, yeah, that thing, part but... was like, listen, you were doing good. You cast well up to he controls you through smell. And I get that's also kind of like they're trying to do the campy Bond stuff. But it's like, listen, you can't have a movie about human trafficking and horrible stuff there, but also have your, oh, no, Mr. Bond, you can't touch me because of my smell. Anyway, my number five is Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings which we already talked about. And the only additional thing I'll add here is that I am a giant fan of martial arts movies in general. In my top films of all time, The Raid is like number six. So I love martial arts films. And the fact that Shang-Chi was a 
Marvel film that also felt like an homage to a lot of great martial arts films. Just like Ulrich mentioned, Slagathor said, I felt the same way. That's why it's so high for me. Uh, my number four is Nobody. Which I didn't see, but I want to because Bob Odenkirk is a great actor. He is. And this is one of those ones like, all right, I'm intrigued. But I've realized in recent years I've become really desensitized to action movies in that, listen – I now I have seen all the insanity of superhero movies. So your action movie really has to not only have great stunts, but be doing something I haven't seen before. Yeah. To really kind of hook me. It's like, listen, I've seen great stunts. I've seen crazy action set pieces. What are you bringing? And nobody brings this great kind of gritty, crunchy violence that I am like, oh, I forgot what that was like. And it's a real simple movie of Bob Odenkirk is playing this guy and it sets up this very much like, I'm not sure I feel about this because it's almost, it's almost from like he's been emasculated, yada, yada, yada. But it's more the, this is a guy that had to bury who he was to have a family and decided to unleash who he really is to protect his family. And now he's just a raging bull. I mean, yeah, I've, I've heard that it's, um, because well, a lot of people point out, like I did, that it's John Wick similar. A lot of people point out that one of the main differences is that John Wick is a story about a man who, you know, retired from his past, who gets pulled back into it. Whereas nobody is apparently a story about a man who is hiding his past, but kind of desperately wants an excuse to get back into it. Like, yeah, so the, the motivation is different. I don't know. I like the action in this better than I liked the action in John Wick. John Wick's action always felt like it was trying to be a comic book action in the, the ridiculousness of the setups, whereas this very much felt like a callback to classic action of, I'm on a bus, there's these people, I'm going to hurt them now. Yeah, but isn't part of the point of that that, like, he's almost looking for an excuse to fight them? That's the thing, is it's very much, and again, this is probably telling a little bit about myself, he is a guy that you very much goes, he is just kind of always pissed and always kind of you know he's going against who he really is so yes there is always that much like i want an excuse to go back to who i was but he also recognizes if i go back to who i was that's not a good thing i was not a good person i will say that one of the key differences also is that um with keanu reeves at least modern day keanu reeves he looks like a guy that you probably don't want to mess with just yeah. in general just with his height and his like He's got this kind of peaceful, like, in-control kind of vibe. Whereas Bob Odenkirk, there's no better way to put this, he looks schlubby. He looks like yeah. the kind of guy you expect to be in the suburbs and kind of pathetic. And the fact that – I mean that in the best possible way because, again, I really like Bob Odenkirk. But the fact that he then turns out to be a crazy, like, hitman or something is a lot more surprising. And I, I just like the – I mean, this is a good, fun, no-frills, crunchy action movie. So my number four – is Godzilla versus Kong, which is not as good as Godzilla King of Monsters a few years back. Nope. But but it's still Godzilla and King Kong with a modern budget and a lot of time on screen. And it basically activates all of the neurons in my brain from watching kaiju movies growing up. And it's primarily a Kong movie, not a Godzilla movie, which I'm fine with. And, uh, yeah, I don't know if there's anything else to say about that. I mean, if the idea of if, – if Godzilla and Kong fighting and spending a lot of time on screen doing their Godzilla and Kong stuff doesn't appeal to you, I'm not going to try to convince you otherwise, you know? 
Yeah, I liked it. It almost made it on my list, but it kind of got hamstrung of King of the Monsters was just so damn good that yeah. that was the bar that it had to meet. And it didn't and meet that, but it's it still... doesn't even. That's the problem is King of the Monsters looks beautiful. This it never reaches that. So I'm like, I can't put you on this list because you're not even looking as good as the other. Yeah, no, I mean, there's there's a lot of sequences like. In King of the Monsters, there are a lot of things that look like they could be tailor-made into wall posters just because of, like, how the storms work and how the framing works. And, yeah, the directing on on display in Gods vs. Kong is not as effective, but there are still a handful. It's not, like, every sequence like it is in King of the Monsters, but there are plenty of good ones, like Kong with his crazy axe in in the city jumping around. Like, it's great stuff. The finale's great, but it's just the pieces leading up to it aren't as good. And, like, listen... You, you need to hit the big emotional beats that a lot of other movies have. This movie, I didn't, like, except for the end. It's like, this is fun. I'm enjoying the hell out of this. This is cool. I want to see more. But the bar was set so high for you, I don't think you ever could have lived up. Yeah, I agree. But that's why, you know, King of Monsters was the number one movie the year it came out, whereas Godzilla vs. Kong is just my number four movie. It's I yeah. still enjoyed it, but, again, there's really not much else to say about it. It's, it's the big, big monkey movie. So. <laughs> All right. Uh, my number three. Encanto. Which I talked about, so go ahead with, with your points. <laughs> so I saw the trailers for this. I'm like, yeah, no, that's just more, you know, Disney, whatever. I'm not really interested. And then it came out on Disney Plus on Christmas. And I'm like, you know what? It's Christmas. We've got nothing else to watch. Uh, let's try this. Let's just try this. And I watched it, and I'm like, oh, wow. Not only is the animation great and the songs are great, but I really enjoyed this movie. And then the more I thought about it, this is the first Disney movie I've enjoyed since I don't know when. Like, okay, enjoyed is the wrong word. Actually genuinely got behind, like, why people loved this. Mm-hmm. And it really just, like, clicked on all the levels. And my daughter, this has replaced Frozen for her. This is her new go-to movie. Good. <laughs> uh, I don't Luisa, just like Frozen. I just got tired of Frozen. So. Oh, I'm so tired of Frozen. But it's nice to have a movie that I haven't seen. It. I've probably seen a million times because she watches it on repeat. But it's also funny. Luisa is now her favorite Disney princess. Good. And Pressure is now the hold music in my brain. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what I can really say about this. We have said this is a really good movie. I mean, just animation wise and what it's talking about and all the character designs are really unique and feel kind of crafted and it honestly again has a lot of weird similarities with something like eternals because it's the story of a a family and a matriarch and the nature of possibly a new matriarch although it's less it's more implied in this movie than it is in that movie uh but there's a lot going on there yeah, no, I'm definitely. There's definitely a pattern about my movie choices this year that I think say a lot more about me than I want to. But given what I have said about this movie on Twitter and especially in regards to Louisa, you all know way more than you ever wanted to know about me. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, my number three movie, which actually, if I were doing it like the best movies I saw this year and not my favorite, this would be number one, is Last Night in Soho. I think Last Night in Soho is the best made film that I saw this year, just from, like, the craft of filmmaking. It's the new Edgar Wright film, which I'm always a fan of Edgar Wright. I mean, literally, the fact that my least favorite Edgar Wright movie is his most successful one with Baby Driver, I don't know what that says about me and my relationship to Edgar Wright's films, but not the point. To me, Last Night in Soho feels kind of like kind of like Baby Driver, but better. Because Baby Driver was essentially Edgar Wright doing 
the heist movie, and this is more like him doing the psychological thriller movie. And uh, do you know anything about Last Night in Soho, Orc? I know that it's on my list and that I really wanted to see it and that I didn't get the chance. All right, I won't spoil anything because, again, this is a spoiler-free top ten, really. But Last Night in Soho is largely about a girl who lives in a small village in Britain somewhere who dreams of being a fashion designer. And particularly, she loves the fashion of 60s London and the the downtown scene of 60s London. And so she gets into this high fashion school in London, and she goes there. And again, she's this, like, small-town girl, uh, not even town, a small village girl in London. And at first, she doesn't get along with her college roommate people, so she leaves and instead moves into this little townhouse run by this old lady that's like right across the street from a a theater an old theater and then things start getting weird because at night she starts dreaming about this woman from the 60s who's played by the main character from uh queen's gambit anya taylor joy when you need someone that looks pretty but also kind of different yeah and she does it very well and and so the main character starts having dreams where she is Anna Taylor Joy's character as she starts getting involved in the London underground and the shady stuff that happened in 60s London. And she starts really struggling with, am I haunted? Am I going insane? What is what is happening here? But also she's kind of falling, losing sense of what her identity is. It's it's really hard to explain. And then the the ending does a thing that is both kind of oddly conventional, but also I I saw coming only like two minutes before it was revealed, which I think is a good thing for a, a twist, actually. It's not really a twist. It's just a reveal. And that made the whole thing work even better. And yeah, it's just Edgar Wright being making a visually gorgeous, kind of creepy, kind of an homage to 60s London, but also a condemnation of of London in the 60s. It's It's a very complex movie that I really liked, so... Yeah, and I really want to see this one. I like. I may disagree with many of you on Scott Pilgrim, but I do agree that uh, he's an incredible director. Yep. All right. Anyway, your number two. Yeah, my yeah. number two. Uh, Bo Burnham Inside. Um, like when this came out, and everyone started losing their minds about it. I'm like, oh, listen, I haven't watched Bo Burnham since I was, you know, in my early twenties. I'm not really sure if he's changed that much that I'd give a shit to watch his new special. And then I kept hearing like, no, no, you've got to watch it. This is something different. And I did. And it's really fucking good. I mean, music aside, basically he shot, recorded, edited, did all this stuff over the year of that part of our first pandemic. And it's kind of, I don't, I don't want to use the word haunting, but I can't think of a better word to kind of watch him go through what we all went through of losing hope and kind of going a little bit stir crazy intercut with these really upbeat jazzy you know musical fun ones i mean you got one of like great songs like white girl instagram real quick don't get me wrong i love bo burnham i've seen him live when he came to my town and he's hilarious and i uh, i have nothing but high amounts of respect for him i just got annoyed by the fact that there was a there was a tiktok where someone just said something along the lines of Bo Burnham's inside is not a personality. And then some girl was like, <laughs> what? So, and, and that conveys perfectly what my own issue is. That is 100% the case. People really did attach 
And that is that is true. I mean, people did really get into the nitty gritty and obsess about the depictions of depression and all that. And it's like that's like I am not I am not at all surprised that Bo Burnham made just from word of hearing probably one of the best quote unquote comedy specials in memory. Like that doesn't surprise me. Bo Burnham always had the potential to be like he's a great artist. I mean, the fact that he, I remember him coming up with art is dead already, and he'd probably fight against me calling him a great artist on principle, but he is. So that doesn't surprise me. I just the reaction was problematic. On, oh, the reaction was over the top. But that's what I mean, is that it was this great combination of really great, catchy, fun songs, monologues and watching him kind of crack under the pressure of one trying to do this as well as trying to do this during a world ending pandemic. Mm hmm. So it's very complicated. There's a lot going on. I really enjoyed the hell out of this. Ironically, Slagathor hated the parts where he wasn't singing. Eh. He's like, listen, I get what he's going through. I don't care that he's depressed. Move on to the next fucking song. <laughs> that sounds like Slagathor. All right. My number two, which was my number one for most of the year, is Free Guy. The Ryan Reynolds, uh, essentially video game version of The Truman Show. I actually went back and watched The Truman Show after Free Guy and... Uh, yeah, Free Guy's better. Truman Show's good, but Free Guy's better at doing similar things. Yeah. Sorry, I think it is. Anyway, if, if you if you missed it, Free Guy is about a in a, a near future there is a video game that is called I don't know, Crime City or something like that. Yeah, it's not, it's not important. It's one is, part. Uh, it's Grand Theft Auto and Fortnite. Fortnite. And, yeah, but it's a big massive multiplayer online games where everyone's playing in the city at the same time. So like World of Warcraft, GTA, and and Fortnite. And there's a character that Ryan Reynolds plays who is straight up an NPC. He's not a real person stuck in a game like Dot Hack or something. He's he is a a non-playable character. He is a software construct. But something happens that causes his programming to expand. And actually the nature of that is very important to the the third act of the movie, so I'm not going to go into details. But he becomes self-aware, kind of. He doesn't know he's a video game character, but he starts he, – he, he becomes he, – he's pushing at the boundaries of his role. And he starts – literally the first thing that happens is he kills a player character and takes their glasses, which are, allow him to see the game aspects of the world he lives in. And then he starts exploring what that means, and he has a certain goal – in regards to a certain other person that I'm not going to go into, but then he starts following that goal and becomes a sensation in the real world. And we got Taika Waititi playing this perfect encapsulation of uh, video game company douchebaggery. And we've got the Steve from stranger things being like the main coder who's trying to understand what's happening. We've got some commentary on shitty business practices in the video game community, which as someone who pays close attention to that, I latch onto very well. And, Ryan Reynolds just gets to be the – he gets to be what I'm going to call wholesome Deadpool because his character of Guy is just a super nice person, in a, essentially in a GTA game. <laughs> and the action's great. The visuals are great. I love the color choices and the framing and the basic nature of it. Being a software developer myself, I was able to latch on to very well. I love that in stories like this – like Toy Story and Cars and whatnot, they usually don't give any sort of explanation as to why the these inanimate objects are suddenly animate. But here they do give an explanation, and it makes sense, and it actually is tied in directly to the 
like build up to the third, the, the climax of the movie. So it all works extremely well for me. So, yeah, no, I saw it. I liked it. I have issues with it, but I'm not going to talk about that here. Anyway, that's fine if you have it. Like, I'm not saying it's a perfect movie. Like I said, I think Last Night in Soho is a better movie. I just personally latched on to Free Guy a lot. So I think I'm experiencing Ryan Reynolds burnout, to be honest with you. I think that's the problem. Oh, I mean, that's fair. I mean, Ryan Reynolds is a – how do I put this? I actually was reading a review of Free Guy where someone said that Ryan Reynolds is kind of got the Brad Pitt issue of that he looks like a leading man, but he is honestly – like he's got like an inner Jim Carrey that wants to break out. Right. See, of, more of my problem is he keeps playing the same type of character, and I don't know if he's being – like, I've seen him in stuff like The Voices, where he's really getting out and playing and doing different, but he Buried. keeps getting forced. Yeah, he keeps getting forced back to, no, be Ryan Reynolds. And I'm like, okay, I, 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 I've I had enough. If you're not doing Deadpool, I don't want you to be Ryan Reynolds anymore. I mean, Go that's fair. something different. And that's, there what, are... that's why Free Guy doesn't work for me. It's like, okay, this is fun, but it's just Ryan Reynolds again. There are certain actors that I think can get away with that. I always used uh, Clint Eastwood as the the <laughs> archetype for what we're talking yeah. about, where I just expect you to play the character that you play. Uh, and so for Ryan Reynolds, like, I know that he can act outside of that, but it doesn't bother me when he... D- when the movie calls for him to be that, like, to me, this this strikes me more like, hey, we wrote this movie, and this character would be perfectly done by Ryan Reynolds. Can we get Ryan Reynolds? I'm not saying that's how it happened, but that's how it feels to me. <laughs> and maybe if I hadn't been, like, it wasn't at the end of my Ryan Reynolds exposure, it would have hit differently. But at this point in the year, I'm like, listen, I uh, know, no, just just come back next year after I've had a break of you being you. All right, what's your number one? Uh, my number one in closing out the ongoing theme of dysfunctional families is Mitchells versus the Machines. Which I already talked about, so you go ahead. Um, this is one that I originally saw the trailers for. I'm like, oh, that could be good. That could be bad. And then, you know, it disappeared in the wave of the pandemic and then popped up on Netflix and everyone was like, oh, my God, have you seen the Mitchells versus the Machines? I'm like, all right, all right, all right. Let's watch this and see. And then after, you know, several swift jabs to the heart, I'm like, oh, fuck, that's the best movie I've seen all year. Can I I do want to add one thing. And this is. How do I phrase this properly? Because normally I don't like trying to talk about this kind of stuff because I'm not the right person to listen to. But I picked up very early on that the main character, Kate, uh, Katie or Kate, she's wearing a rainbow pen on her jacket and she's talking to these people on uh, on like Skype or you know FaceTime or whatever uh, that are going to be at the college she's going to, including this one girl, Jade, who's only there for like, you know, a half second or something like that. But I instantly was like, I bet Kate is into her and then the movie which is not about this at all but then there's a moment at the end where the mom just goes hey are you and jade official and it's not commented on but i just i don't know i really appreciate that it's just it's oh, that there one. but it's just the, it's just that's who she is but it's not the i don't know i don't know what to say you know what i'm no, trying to say right. no, yeah and it was a 100 it was a wonderful touch and it, no it's kind of very much in the subtext of the movie about her finding her community her people and, as she says yes and kind of, again, this whole secondary family unit and discovering and you always have your primary one. But, I mean, it's a movie about a dad and a daughter trying to relate. And the dad is very much this outdoorsy, gruff guy. They're already keying in on me. I'm not sure how I feel about this. And then, you know, every dad's fear, whichever dad is losing that connection with your child mm-hmm. that you have when they're little. And it's like, goddamn, 
leave me alone, okay? You don't need to, you know, hone in this hard on me. Yeah, again, but, the the moment where you where it reveals what the dad did several years prior, and I'm not going to get any more specific than that, was in my top three moments of the year, period. So That part hits hard, and then the final, you know, fight part hits hard, and it's a dumb joke, and it's a dumb scene, but, you know, like, oh, they're working together now, and it's like, ah, emotions. Oh, I didn't mention before, too, that the only reason I wanted to watch the movie was that I saw the clip on YouTube of the mom losing her mind. Yeah, it's one of the best things I've seen animation in a long time, because basically a robot threatens her son. So she suddenly goes berserk. And there's a moment where she goes like, I am Linda Mitchell, mother of two. Fear me. Yeah, no, this movie. So we've talked about the ring. I want to talk about the animation and how fucking amazing this is. Well, like, it does there are the, um, little bits of animation. It does kind of those, the, in the, the Spider-Verse anim- thing. Where it's like mixing up animations yes. and putting in little little extra key bits and well, Lord and Miller are attached to this. I think they're producers. Mm-hmm. I think they're attached me. to this in some way. But I mean, everything going on—it's so stylistically cool, and that's I think Encanto kind of hits so well. But like this somehow feels different from the rest of the Disney movies, if only in the fact that it's not set somewhere vaguely European, very copy paste. Mm-hmm. This also works like. This doesn't feel like any other animated movie that's come out. It's kind of Spider-Verse-y, but it's not, because Spider-Verse kind of felt like a comic. Well, yeah, Spider-Verse was a comic come to life, whereas the Mitchells versus the Machines, there's a thing I'm going to not spoil, but it's a reveal. The credits themselves are filled with pictures of the animators and their families, and it is – how do I explain this? It's a way to illustrate to you, the audience, that this was really a passion project and a this was the animators showing their yes. love of animation itself. That's and I mean, there is so much going on. There are so many great jokes. They keep hitting a pug joke that shouldn't work. But somehow the pug does. joke. Oh, my God. Man, the pug joke. Sh- you're right. It definitely shouldn't have worked in the first time it happened. I was like, all right, that was funny. Uh, they're probably not going to bring it up. And then the fact that it's like integral to what happens like i love that so much sorry <laughs> and i wasn't sure if it's just because my mother has a dozen pugs so I maybe pugs. i was <laughs> i was maybe i was maybe predispositioned to the whole pug thing it's like yeah i know i know what a pug is i've dealt with them enough this is an accurate depiction they can't look straight yeah but no like this movie is just so good top to bottom even if it wasn't just having my emotions in a heart and a headlock and you know giving me pile drivers over and over again. The animation is so good. And for celebrity voice acting, because I'm typically not a big fan of celebrity voice acting, I think they cast really well with these actors. They actually felt like, oh, you actually are don't actually know. doing a character. I don't know any of the cast. Who who are the voice cast? Oh, um, I only know the dad. It's who's the producer behind the Halloween Kills movies? Really? I, oh, Danny McBride? Danny McBride. Yeah, Danny McBride. Danny McBride is the dad, and I kept thinking it was Nick Offerman, if only because they kind of modeled him after Nick Offerman. His but... character looks and sounds like a Nick Offerman type. But no, that's so. Danny McBride, and he's doing a great job. I'm like, oh, wow, I you were really doing a great job here. Like, again, I think the entire cast are mostly celebrity voice actors, but they're doing a really good job of doing the voices that it felt like, oh, no, you're actually doing a character, not just, this is my talking voice. Yeah. But again, the whole crux of this movie, the focus is the dad daughter stuff. Like even the mom and the son are there primarily as 
the mom is support for the dad and the son is support for the daughter. For, although the son does get some really great comedic moments. Like I'll spoil this joke. There's a moment where the son is really into dinosaurs, but he's, yep. again, he's like 10 or something like that. And then it turns out the neighbor girl is also really into dinosaurs. Yeah. And, and she reveals that to him. And he just said, like, he stares at her for a moment. And then he's like, I hate dinosaurs. I hate you. Never speak to me again. And he just runs away. <laughs> so, yeah. He's, no, this... he's a kid. He doesn't know how to handle these emotions. And it just made me laugh. So, but yeah, it's, it's primarily the, the, the dad daughter story and they do it very well. My number one movie of the year is Spider-Man No Way Home. And I admit, I am very predisposed to, to Spider-Man for a lot of reasons. Into the Spider-Verse was my favorite movie of the year that came out. Uh, Far From Home wasn't my favorite year that came out. But again, I said before, Homecoming was okay. Far From Home is good. No Way Home is great. Now, I've tried very hard to separate my personal as Ulrich kind of put it, my personal feelings when it comes to certain story beats. And I do think that No Way Home is constructed very well. I don't think it's as good a movie as Spider-Verse. I don't think it's as good a movie as the original Raimi Spider-Man either, but I still think it's a great movie. And it hit me in a very emotional spot in like three key moments. Uh, And I don't know what else to say about it other than, you know, it's Spider-Man. You're either on board or you're not. And I would say that if you're the kind of person – here's one thing I will say. If you are the kind of person who didn't care for Homecoming or Far From Home, and especially if your reasons were things like, oh, it's too much about the Avengers or Iron Man's too involved in everything or I don't like Spider-Man having you know, the super tech suit and all that stuff, give No Way Home a shot because kind of the entire point of No Way Home is that it reveals that this trilogy is a hat trick to basically retell the entirety of Peter Parker's origin story, but in three movies and and with certain important twists to it. And once I realized it was doing that, that's why I say that once No Way Home ends, I can't remember the last movie I've seen, maybe King of the Monsters, the last movie I've seen where it ended and I immediately wanted more, uh, immediately. Like, it's very effective, (laughs) so... And I will say specifically, Tom Holland has really come into his own as an actor. I really hope that uh, he signs a new contract with with Disney because I know that he's going off to play like Nathan Drake and Uncharted and his career is kind of taking off. But I feel like I never disliked him as Peter Parker. Like I get that he's always been, you know, he's always been very good as Peter Parker without being necessarily great. But he kind of achieves greatness with his performance in this movie. And I I really, really want there's a there's specifically a moment at the end where without revealing what's going on, he's in a donut shop and he has to make a decision. And all of the thoughts that are going through his head are shown in like very simple physical acting. And I felt everything that he was feeling. At least I I think I did. And it, it hit me very hard. And yeah, I, I love No Way Home. I legitimately love No Way Home. <laughs> Yeah, I feel like there's not much more I can say about it that I haven't already said. I think we will do a review for our patrons, so be on the lookout for that. Where we can talk spoilers, because there is a lot worth talking about that we just can't right yep. now. All right, that's that's it then. That's our top tens, and we've gone like 40 minutes over what we normally would do. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be a fun one to edit, so let's get to that outro. Especially if you made it all the way to the end of us talking about movies we saw, we are in no way qualified really to discuss the critiques of film. Or maybe we are, because 
art is subjective and film critic is stupid. Anyways, be sure to like, share, subscribe, do all the things, share this around, introduce this to your friends. Let's make 2022 bigger than 2021. And whatever platform you're listening to us on, thank you, first of all. You can find us on SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, Podcast, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and the Fireside Alliance. And uh, you can also rate us on Spotify, which I think is very actually helpful to how the podcast grows. I actually honestly don't know the mechanics of it, but it sounds like a good Nobody thing, right? Rate on Spotify. Mechanics. That's the thing. Yeah. Personally, if you give us five, it means we're more likely to be suggested. Here, here's what I will say, though. Personally, if you're not listening to us on Fireside Alliance, try maybe to listen to us there because there's a lot of other good content creators there, too, who could use your attention and are, are definitely worth it. So, But if there's another platform you want us to be on and we're not on, tell us about it and we'll look into it. As always, this has been Lord Commander Ulrich. And his shield brother, Axel Wright. Be sure to tune in next time. And as always, stay honorable. <laughs>